Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. By carefully watching brands' social media presences, Sprinkler enables its vast client base to connect with consumers. Hi, I'm Scarlett Fu with Bloomberg News, and in this episode, we sit down with Sprinkler's founder and CEO, Raji Thomas, as we talk about Sprinkler's range of offerings, the importance of keeping a tight-knit, in- the importance of keeping a tight-knit internal bond while navigating remote work, and how Thomas and his team decide whether to grow internally or acquire external entities. In this month's edition, we are joined by Raji Thomas. He is founder and CEO of Sprinkler which is a social media management platform for some of the world's biggest companies, including Nike, Microsoft, and Cisco. Raji, thank you so much for joining us. Your company is based in New York City. You're outside the city right now at the moment in the middle of this pandemic. Your company helps other companies post messages and communicate with their customers on social media platforms, big and small, including some that many of us haven't heard of. You are an enterprise tech company that's focused on customer service. So I wanna take a step back here and start with your background. You grew up in India and Africa. You spent time in Nigeria, and then you eventually moved to the United States to get your MBA as an adult. How did that nomadic history shape your thinking about what you wanted to pursue? Well, I think it made me into the person that I am. And growing up, that was, uh, you know, I thought it was many times traumatic. To, to keep moving and have to make new friends and figure out a lot of things on your own. Um, but as often in life, you learn that some of the things that are painful as you go through are the ones that make you who you are and eventually uh, really help you. Uh, and, and, and for me, having grown up in so many different cultures, and I've kind of learned that if you choose to, you can belong anywhere. And 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 there's no, I have this concept that we, at some point, all of us were born from probably the same parents, right? When you ask you ask anyone, hey, um, who are your closest relatives? They'll probably name their family, their, then their parents and grandparents and grand-grandparents. And if you go all the way back, we'll probably want giant family um, and being able to live and relate to so many cultures, I think, is, a, is the biggest blessing I've I've gotten growing up. Okay, so clearly it's made you very adaptable and be able to see the common uh, commonalities between different kinds of people in different cultures. You've also said that you and your family were not particularly entrepreneurial. For instance, you did not grow up uh, operating a lemonade stand. Uh, or anything like that. So I wonder, what was your first experience with entrepreneurship? And and what do you think, when did it become apparent to you that this was a good fit? Well, to say my family was not entrepreneurial will be an understatement. My family was anti-entrepreneurial. I think my parents grew up, you know, my dad is a retired professor. My, My mom worked for the government. Um, and in my family, uh, the whole idea of entrepreneurship was like you had a business. I had an uncle who at one point owned a, a, a store in, in town, 
And so the whole idea for them about business was that business is what you do uh, and essentially you are screwing people to make money. <laughs> so, so uh, and, and that's how I grew up. Um, I am an accidental entrepreneur and life kind of uh, put me into situations where these opportunities existed. And, and I'm a person that is very afraid to fail. Um, so we've uh, ended up doing well. So you describe this kind of antagonistic relationship with business um, from when you were a child. Growing up and prior to starting your own companies, what kind of experience did you have with customer service? What did you think of it? And I, I just wonder how it shaped what you've done with it later on. It comes not from customer service. I don't think into, about all of this is you know, starting a company or becoming an entrepreneur or building a business. I think of these as solving problems that you see. Almost anything you look at um, can be made better. And almost always you can find out how you can make it better if you wipe the slate clean in your brain and you just think about um, a concept that, that I call future backwards. I'm sure others use this phrase as well, but it is to just reimagine what things ought to be or could be in the future. And then say, look, if, if we're all going to fly around and we should be able to fly around in 30 years in your own private flying machines, then what should you be doing now? What should you be doing five years from now? Um, the same thing with, with service or expedient. For me, the fundamental notion is human beings are born once and they die once. And, and I try to rationalize everything into this concept that the ultimate responsibility that each one has is to really understand that it, there's a finite journey and the journey is all you have. So this notion of trying to make yourself happier almost drives everything I do. Um, and you have a responsibility to do that to yourself. You have a responsibility to do that to others, to try to make others happier when they come into contact with you. Not happiness, because I've seen people chase happiness and constantly be disappointed. I think happiness is subjective and life is tough. Um, you know, what do you say to someone who just lost a loved one? It's a tough situation. But regardless of anything and anything that can happen to you, if you're alive, you're breathing, you can think, you got to ask yourself, what can I do to be happier? And many times it's just a choice and in almost a positive way of looking at things that has zero downside. Okay, so you're describing an approach in which you figure out your de destination and you reverse engineer backwards to figure out how you get to that point. That's so right. I, I want to put it in the perspective of what Sprinkler does. What's the destination for what Sprinkler is intending to do and how do you get there? Yeah, so if I can go back to your opening comments, we, we, we I mean, yes, we pub, allow brands to publish to these channels and respond to people, but essentially we are creating what I think is um, the world's first truly modern customer experience management platform for large businesses. That's what we do. Um, so then let me answer your last question. Uh, what are we trying to do with it? Well, I, I think we have a huge opportunity. I think we can create a $100 billion company um, with what we're doing at Sprinkler because everybody needs it. The world has fundamentally changed 
um, three different ways. The way we communicate this change, the, the channels we use are very, very different than the ones we've used in the past. They, uh, you know, 3.8 billion people are connected. Most of them are connected with their real identities. Um, and, and what they're doing, number two, is putting so much data about themselves um, for the world to consume. And, and number three, number three, their expectations are different. Whether you're a customer, you're a citizen, um, or a prospect, your expectations are very different from what a customer expected 10, 20, 30 years ago. So every company, big or small, every government, every not-for-profit is confronting these three changes. You can think of them as massive challenges, you can think of them as massive opportunities. There are, your consumers are in different channels than you are. They put information out, they're connected to each other and they expect you to understand that uh, information when you deal with them. And their expectations are very different. So you have to work across your silos to, to create amazing experiences for them. And I think all, all industries will be led by customer centric companies like Amazon's doing in retail. Um, and so inevitably you need to solve these problems and we're building a platform from the ground up to do that where you can reach, engage and listen to customers in any channel. You know, we support 36 channels now, 24 social channels, 11 messaging channels. We support email, text, and we're adding voice. Um, you need to be able to process this unstructured legally available digital data that people are putting out about themselves, but in a consumer privacy first way, respecting the rules that these channels are putting on the, on that data. Um, and, and lastly, you need to be able to work across marketing and care and, you know, all the countries and all the business units to create those experiences for great experiences for customers. Um, we're very, very early in this. This is the same space as Salesforce and Adobe and others operate in. We think it's a $100 billion market and will play out in the next 20 years. Um, those companies are amazing. They'll continue to grow. But I think there's an opportunity for a huge multi-billion dollar company to, to come with a clean architecture to solve these problems using artificial intelligence, which is what we're doing. And we work with you know, some of the best brands in the world today, 50% um, of the Fortune 100, nine out of the top 10 most valuable brands in the world are sprinkler customers, but it's it's we're only getting started. But that's not the exciting part. I think that's a business opportunity. Um, you know, that's what the 2000 of us are working on now. The exciting opportunity, I think, is to redefine enterprise software as a category. Um, and if you're familiar with enterprise software, it's known for really obnoxious hardcore selling marketing and we 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 even if we try to be nice and good that's like almost like a marketing thing as opposed to a, a true company culture so i would submit to you that we haven't gone through the revolution that retail may have gone through so our vision is to try and do what zappos did in retail with enterprise software okay let me let me say that one more time you know, Tony Shea was amazing. May his soul rest in peace. And I think he single-handedly reset the standards of customer care in retail with Sappos. And, you know, that's why Amazon bought them. Um, 
I think there's an opportunity to create an enterprise software company that does the same thing in enterprise software. And, and that's truly our vision. Our vision is to create the world's most loved enterprise software company. Our mission is to enable every organization on the planet to make their customers happier. Mm. Not happy because happiness is subjective and, and life is complicated. But when you are using an iPhone, Apple can make you happier. When you're using a, a, a Dell laptop, Dell can make you happier. If you're using a, a, a Nestle product, they can make you happier. If you're on the phone with Verizon, AT&T, they can make you happier. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we are trying to do. And if I want to make you happier, Scarlett, I have to start by listening to you and understanding what matters to you in life. And so that's what we do. You know, bring the voice of the customer to large companies and allow them to take care of them and do customer care and engagement right, and right. sell the market. You know, that's how it comes together. Okay. So Raji, you've spoken about in the past how you co-invented Sprinkler with some of the customers who told you their specific challenges, what they wanted to address, and what their needs were when it comes to communicating with their consumers um, and marketing, and especially through social media channels. Can you give us some concrete examples of who some of those early partners were and how you chose them and how you chose to build some of the product that you do offer around those needs? Absolutely. So. Uh, we work with Nike to build uh, what's now become our our modern marketing product. Nike, as you know, is a, is a world-class brand, you know, probably one of the best in the world. And when it comes to marketing and as they, you know, we're trying to solve the problem of creating campaigns across a large globally distributed team and operating in an agile fashion, they encountered a lot of challenges that, that, modern channels pose for any brand. Um, how do I create you know, hundreds of pieces of content? How do I connect reporting back? How do I create workflow across markets? And, and so we co-created, they gave us a lot of input and, and they were what we call as a definition partner for a modern marketing product. We've done uh, the same thing with many others and Microsoft was instrumental in, in optimizing some of our early um, AI models um, working with them, we have worked with Dell uh, for uh, a ton of our modern care product features, and and we uh, I, I say to folks that you know our vision guides us. That's like our if you go sit in your car and you punch in your address, that's our vision. That's non-negotiable. But our customers have been our GPS. So you know what I I, I take a, a go around a town or go through it. Um, I take a highway or take a a, a, a a shortcut. It's based on what our customers tell us. Now, you had previously started an email marketing business. Explain to us the differences, the key difference between engaging customers over email, which is an open protocol, versus over social media, which is corporate owned. Um, email at scale had hit massive limitations, right? The first one is email. Um, there's no permission in email. So I get your email address, I can spam you. And then you have to resort to legislation. Uh, and thankfully we've got can spam. So I can't spam you legally, but technically I can. Um, email has really no good support for photos and videos. 
in, in email, I can't truly differentiate different types of email. So if I send you a coupon or if I send you a bank statement that you want to keep forever, I can't flag it as a sender to you, right? You might do it on your end. Um, and when you look at modern channels, that's what they've solved. And, and there's better support for videos and photos. And there's whether you're following a light, you know, uh, friending, you're giving someone permission to communicate with them. Um, and, and those are the big differences. In, in with email, the protocol is, is standard, SMTP. So you know how uh, email message is going to live and propagate. Whereas when you're interfacing with all these modern channels, they're all private companies, you know, Facebook, Twitter, and WeChat, and, you know, Line, and all of that. So you really have to, you have no idea how, you know, as they are evolving, they're changing the API. So you have to build a robust fault-tolerant infrastructure to connect to these and, and maintain state while they are evolving. And so that the businesses that are using you have a very predictable interface to to connect to platforms. Was there a moment in the evolution of social media that led you to see and identify this opportunity for Sprinkler, or was it just kind of the next iteration, the natural progression of what you had already been doing? Um, for instance, email marketing, it just kind of naturally segued to this. Well, there, there's a distinct moment. When, when I got started, I was just thinking of emulating what we had done in email in mm -hmm. modern channels, right? Back then it was just, basic social media channels messaging hadn't evolved to the degree it has um it was about two years into it and i was funding it with my my money initially um hoping to emulate what we had done previously but there was a there was a distinct moment when i realized this was way bigger we we almost had like a facebook moment where um one of my friends who I'd met for lunch said to me, he asked me, what do you want to do with, with Sprinkler? And I said, oh, I think we can, we can create a hundred million dollar company. And he leaned back and he went, well, this is not a hundred million dollar opportunity. It's a billion dollar opportunity. Yeah. And I had, uh, had a suspicion this was way bigger than I thought it would be. Um, but that, that was the moment I realized, man, this is much bigger, not because of what we're doing, but because, the way you market, the way you advertise, the way you care for customers, all was getting disrupted. And they, was, they were getting disrupted because people were connected and consumers were in control. So that's the moment when I went, this is not a like, let's publish or respond. This is really a front office platform opportunity. And the world needs a completely new architecture to market to a customer who gets their information from each other and not from the brand. You can personalize advertising. Customer care needs to be proactive. People are going to give a one-star review, and they're not going to call 1-800-BRAND to complain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want to take a step back here for a moment, because as we talk about what Sprinkler is trying to accomplish, you started Sprinkler after having already successfully exited another company that you founded, uh, the email marketing business. And when you realized that you wanted to move on and do this new thing, you told your wife that you were going to start another company. And my understanding is that she began crying. Is, is that right? Well, yeah, to, to be fair, I, I didn't found the previous companies. A, a group of us did. And, and, and so Sprinkler is the one where I kind of went solo uh, for the first time. And, and you're absolutely right. My wife uh, has denied it since. But uh, the problem with starting companies is it's 
only sexy um, later when you're successful. <laughs> uh, the early years of, of starting uh, a venture like like what we're doing at Sprinkler, it's incredibly painful. Um, you have no money. Um, there's a massive chicken or egg situation. Your early clients, especially if you're trying to penetrate the enterprise market, can't work with you because you're a small company. Um, and you can't build it because you know you don't have clients. You can't sell. So it is very, very hard, very stressful. Uh, and 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 you have to sustain it over very long protracted periods of time. Um, and I basically was risking everything we had made till then um, instead of kind of retiring and making sure that my family was going to be taken care of. Uh, my kids could go to school and and then I could have continue to be an, be an executive, you know, for, for, for the rest of my life. I think it's fascinating how um, not many people are willing to talk about the personal, the non-financial costs of starting a business, because you're right, there is this uh, halo effect around, oh, being a founder of a company, having a startup and, and all the good things that come along with it. But there's a real strain that it puts on yourself, on your finances, on those around you. You also self-funded Sprinkler at the beginning. How do you think your trajectory would be different if you didn't do that? That was a calculated gamble because we had in my previous life, we had raised a bunch of money and I've seen how diluted um, the founding team can get eventually. And these are the people who create the value. Well, I don't know whether it's an Asian Indian thing, but for me, I'm more comfortable losing my money. I hate having to explain to someone why and how I lost their money. So for me, my primary driver in self-funding, it was, I just didn't want to deal with the awkwardness of letting someone else down. Um, and my logic, and I, I, I make decisions using what I call as, you know, long-winded probability trees. And so if the business didn't work out, I would have exactly one person to explain that to, that would be my wife. <laughs> and, uh, and, it, and, and, uh, and I, I didn't have to face awkwardness with anybody external. If the business did work out, I would end up owning more of it. Um, so I thought it was a pretty logical thing. And I very often struggle to understand entrepreneurs who have had success, who then, when they start the next company, go right back out of VCs to raise money. I'm like, why wouldn't you fund it if you believe in it? So how did that change your future negotiations when you did go out to raise capital? Um, you were able to point to the fact that you self-funded the company. Did that make the conversations a lot easier? Was it a, uh, a much smoother sell? I am not a big fan of the word sell. I, people, if, if someone asked me, hey, pitch sprinkler, I say like, I don't want to pitch sprinkler um, or sell me values. I don't want to sell the value of sprinkler. I want a group of people who see the same future I see, the same opportunity I see, and they're excited by it and by who we are. Um, and I found that uh, the smartest people I know who believe in goodness and believe in hard work and, and believe in success and happiness want to do it with other people who are, who are similar. So they just have to know who you are. Um, having said that, I... It made my fundraising super easier. Mm -hmm. uh, almost all our fundraising rounds were done inbound for the most part. Um, and here's what you need to understand. If you're successful, um, these most of these venture capitalists have 
junior people whose job is to find successful companies and pitch them to to convince the entrepreneur to take their money. So if you go in and pitch the thousand people, you're trying to get in the door, you're trying to get an appointment, you're trying to convince people who basically have no time. They're like, pitch me, you know. My brain always goes like, if I know I'm going to be successful, you want me to pitch you to help you make more money. Help me understand that. Pitch me to make me more money. If you're a man of conviction, that's how your brain should be thinking. I don't want to pitch you because we're going to make a lot of money. You pitch me on why you should be the one I should be making money for. You tell um, me why I should accept your money. That's right. That's <laughs> right. And, and, and the answer is you break the chicken the next cycle by focusing on customers and focusing on products, right? Don't get excited by your idea. Take your idea to the real world. Pound it. And for us at Sprinkler, there's only one true north for every company I build. It's what customers are willing to pay with their dollars, not what people get excited about. That's easy. Mm -hmm. The true compass is what customers are willing to pay for with money. And then you deliver, you make them happy, make sure that they, you can retain them. Then you got a business. Right. Then you've got numbers to back you up and you've got a client list to show off to the, to the venture capitalist. Now, you founded Sprinkler back in 2009. That was in the middle of the Great Recession, or at least at the start of it. And in the last two Cornell Tech at Bloomberg speaker series, uh, we spoke with Alexa Von Tobel and Nirad Shah. They also started their businesses in the depths of the recession as well. Why do you think that is? Um, when you look at the broader macro conditions, why do you think that that's a, a ripe time to start businesses? Scarlett, I, I don't have great answers. I, I don't usually think of this as this is a good time or not a good time. You feel compelled because you see a problem. You see, you see, uh, you see a world that ought to look different and no one else is doing it. So you're like, you got to do it. Um, and so uh, both like we, one of my startups was in, we, we, we got started in like 2000, bad time with the tech dot com bubble. Um, but the good news about starting businesses in, in downtowns, it's easier to get talent when things are good and you're in a bubble, you know, it's tough to recruit people and, and keep them motivated because the grass is always greener and people are throwing money at them. Okay, good point. So talent uh, attraction is a big, uh, is much easier in, in a recession. I wonder what other advice you have to company, to people who are starting their own companies in the middle of a global pandemic, for instance, right now, and maybe don't have the successful exit uh, that they can draw upon as experience and didn't self-fund their venture. How would you advise them? What, what's something you would tell them right now? Get deeply passionate about the problem you're solving. Find the biggest problem, try and solve it the best way. Make sure that you find someone you can solve it for who validates that you are indeed solving it for them. Everything else will follow. Don't worry about the, the pandemic or the timing or the economy. Um, get started solving problems. Just find the problem. Focus on the problem. Care about fixing it for people. Uh, maybe I'm off, but that's how my brain works about all of this. And it clearly worked out for you. And looking back, um, Raji, what was the biggest mistake you made, you think, in starting Sprinkler? And how did you course correct? Is there an, an instance now in retrospect that you can say, yeah, I did that totally wrong? Oh, took plenty, plenty. It's a, um, I am a master at screwing up and I've done that all my life over and over again. The beautiful thing about life is you are, um, 
you know, you've either been successful or you just learned something. People are either praising you or they are teaching you something. You know, life's full of learning opportunities. I say it's very hard to learn from successes. Why is that? Because successes are like Indian curries. A lot of ingredients go in and everybody thinks they made it and they're successful because of that. The salt can go, well, if I didn't, I wasn't in there, you'd be screwed. Um, failure is easier to learn from. You know, you take a bad curry, you'll say, oh, that had too much chili in it or salt in it. Uh, it was too spicy and that's easy to learn from. Um, we've screwed up so many times in, in everything I've done. Uh, the biggest mistake learning opportunity for us in Sprinkler was, was in what I refer to as dark years. And I've been advised so many times to not bring it up and celebrate it. But I, I love this is sort of my highlight and the best story of Sprinkler. Um, I did not know how to hire or recruit for culture. Mm -hmm. So the company scaled and we were growing like crazy, tripling, doubling year over year. Um, and in 2016, um, I we had some operational debt to pay and I wanted to bring in a, a team that was experienced and I recruited for experience. I did not recruit for culture. And, you know, I almost killed the company. How so? How did you almost kill a company? Because I let a team, uh, the team I had hired without vetting for culture, um, I let them hire 400 people and fire 300 people in a year. Um, and we lost everything we had built in terms of culture and relationships. And suddenly we were like every other company. Mm. And, uh, you know, we were nickel and diming customers and we were trying to grow. And to me, I looked at it and I realized a year later, this was, this was terrible. And this is, this is not who we were. This is not why we grew. And it didn't matter whether we became successful or we, we, we failed. That's not the company I wanted to build. Um, so we undid it. It was painful. Um, but we're back now, you know, uh, when uh, Hellman and Friedman did the last round uh, of funding with Sprinkler a few months ago. They spent, you know, a few million dollars in six months doing outside in research. And the uh, they talked to clients, people, companies who have left us, employees, ex-employees. And the average score everybody, anybody gave Sprinkler was eight out of ten. And I'm like, okay, we're back, you know. And that was that was only because we went back to our roots. We defined our culture. We call it the Sprinkler way. And 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 that's what drives everything at Sprinkler now. How, how hard was it to admit that mistake? How did you tell your employees, your team, that we screwed up and now we have to fix it? That's not hard at all. I mean, I don't know why, you know, one of our, 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 our core beliefs at Sprinkler is that every human being has the potential to be amazing. What that means is we, we're just lifelong students. We celebrate learning. We celebrate not knowing things. I'm good with celebrating mistakes. Um, so accepting that mistake was not hard um undoing it was very hard <laughs> very 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 hard um because once you culture is dna you know the sprinkler way when it's identified got us back but in the in the early years five six years when we're growing like crazy um culture expanded in 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 people learned it through osmosis and we were not intentional about it. So A, trying to to go back to original culture when a lot of people didn't buy into it, it was hard and they had to 
either leave or change and mm. you know it's not easy for grown-up people to change their dna so we had to go through like exiting a lot of people who didn't believe in that culture. Then we had to double down when people believed in the culture, hire people, implement a recruiting interviewing process that interviewed for that sprinkler way, looked for markers because people will tell you what you want to hear, but have they behaved consistently with with, with the values that we, we believe in? Um, and then we have to promote people who believe in the culture and and fire people even sometimes when they're really amazing, when they don't fit in the culture. Okay, you talk about the Sprinkler way. Clearly, you've now put a lot of thought into culture and kind of codified it. How much time do you think you as CEO spend on operations versus culture? Is it a 50-50 split? Is it 20-80 or 80-20? Um, it depends. There are weeks where, well, almost everything I do um, is related to, and in some way enforcing the sprinkler culture and communicating it and inspiring people to follow it, articulating why that's important. Um, and so in, in terms of my mental um, priorities, that's like 80, 20. Um, I've got an amazing team who frankly, operationally is running the company. My job is to find amazing people the Sprinkler Way calls for us to find the best people in the world who can do their job, who believe in the Sprinkler Way. Um, and then in making sure that people know the vision and, and, and rallying towards it. How do you do that right now during this pandemic? Um, I know that you are a big company, you're kind of spread out around the world, but clearly everyone is working remotely. People can't gather the way they could before. You do have these virtual learning opportunities like daily team check-ins, a mindfulness instructor. Does that, is that enough to maintain and, and reinforce the culture? Um, culture is not what you say it is. It is uh, based on who gets promoted and who gets fired. Um, and, and what's celebrated at each company. So uh, that's the first thing. Uh, we've done a ton of tactical things that have helped us um, be efficient and preserve the sprinkler way through the, the unprecedented times we're in. Um, we, for example, almost every week, um, we have either a town hall or an all-hands meeting. Uh, we have, um, and, and you alluded to this, we have a, a full-time person who's a, a wellness coach teaching, doing meditation sessions and um, yoga, you know, teaching tricks and tips for you to stay mentally healthy. Um, and we have a, a, a fitness instructor who has daily classes that you can join. Um, and, and we encourage everyone to be on video when they speak. Um, and we have this idea that I call integrated living. You know, God's given you 24 hours. Man's the one that split it into nine to five and five to nine. And most people spend their entire lives, you know, um, waiting for weekends and waiting for vacations. And that just means you, you don't have a job that you love. Um, and I think it's stupid for people to spend the best years of their lives, the best days of every week and the best hours of every day doing things they don't like and, and waiting for the breadcrumbs that are left behind. Um, so we integrated living means you have one life, 
you know, it's all priority. I mean, you prioritize some days, you know, your kids are a priority. Some days work is more priority. Um, if you have a conference call you have to do it at 9 p.m., do it because you have to talk to someone in, in Asia. On the flip side, if, if your son's got a soccer game at noon, go take him. You know, don't worry about whether it's Monday or Tuesday and, and just put it on your calendar. So I encourage people to go for a run, you know, just put it on your calendar that, you know, I'm out for a run, even if it's work hours. So this concept of bringing your whole self um, to everything you do, including work, is, is, is what we're trying to advocate uh, very early. So we encourage people if they, you know, they're on video calls and, you know, the dog's barking or your child's crying. It's just a part of who you are. And, and people just talk about it. Hey, that's great. You know, just uh, let me see and, and, and talk about it as opposed to treating that as a distraction. So when we talk about Sprinkler during the pandemic, um, I, I remember that reading that you said that COVID has not hurt the company at all. In fact, uh, you've worked with organizations like the World Health Organization, and you've really been in the middle of it. You've developed this AI-driven chatbot for Facebook Messenger to provide users with information about COVID-19. Could you tell us a little bit about what you learned and what kind of use you have seen of this product? How are people using it and how is it contributing to better understanding? Or is it increasing the divisiveness because there's um, so much disagreement so much polarity between how people view this pandemic and how we should uh, go about it. That's a lot of questions. I know. I'm sorry. No, a lot, lot, lot of good ones. A lot of good ones. Um, look for us. We we have the AI that allows you to make sense of unstructured, publicly available digital data. So if you listen to citizens talking about falling sick or not having enough COVID test kits or or um, not having enough ventilators, governments and organizations can understand where your problems are and what should be fixed first. And if you if you just listen to people exhibiting symptoms, you probably and reasonably accurately predict where you're going to have the next outbreak. So if you have a valuable piece of technology that many states are, be, are using now and the World Health Organization uses and and so I think the technology that we've built is very applicable, both uh, in terms of listening and then being able to engage and communicate to the citizens based on um, what you listen and, and you learn. Uh, this, the other question was this question of um, divisiveness versus oneness. Dividing is a way to create more power. So when you look at history, um, um, distribution of power has happened when kingdoms divide. And there are more kingdoms and more people and, and kings coming to power. Um, massive change and evolution has happened when the reverse happens, when people come together. Uh, and in the past, it was probably with, with, a, with, with the creation of an empire, um, but Every time in history, massive changes has happened is when people come together. Um, so I'm a believer that the only way forward is in unifying people. And unifying people is harder than dividing people because you can 
appeal to base instinct and get people to turn against each other. Now, when they want to stay united, like in any relationships, you have to put up with a lot of sort of base instincts and work counter to, to base animal instincts to stay as a group and to think about the bigger picture. Um, and I think trying to tell people, and, and I try to practice this with Sprinkler, um, hey, you know, hey, make sure that you have um, quantitative guidelines for diversity or inclusion. That's all great. You should have it. But I think we should go beyond it. And we have in, in the Eastern philosophy, there's, there's a prominent idea called oneness, which is the idea that um, you and I aren't very different from each other, regardless of how we look or how we speak and, and, and anything we might say um, or think differently. Ultimately, we're, we're just very similar um, and then you can extend that to animals and, and nature and everything. And the concept of oneness is it's the same energy in that if you seek the soul of anyone, whether they're rich or poor, or, you know, they look very different from you, um, whether there's a man or a woman, um, child or any religion, um, you can connect deeply to them. And connections are established when you find commonality. And so... I'm a big believer that what's loosely referred to as soul, which or energy is the way you connect deeply to others. And once you start connecting deeply, you're a lot more tolerant. So sure. that's a topic I can go on for a long time. Um, but I, I, I just, it pains me every time that I see divisiveness. I, I believe that, especially with social media and, and all this connected technology, the world is a village of 7 billion people. And, you know, if you go back thousands of years or hundreds of years, you know, we created kingdoms based on how far a horse could go uh, or people could move. And time has come for us to start actually thinking radically. What if we had one nation? <laughs> we had one, one global uh, sort of basic system of, of justice that we could all over time get to and, and, and take away, you know, the, the borders and boundaries because people with internet know what everyone else does and can yeah. do the commonality. You're clearly a glass half full guy as you think through some of these existential issues. Um, the WHO is, according to a lot of people, a trusted authority when it comes to public health. But there's a lot of disinformation, a lot of divisiveness over social media, and that that gets amplified. What kind of insight can you share with us about how government agencies or multilateral bodies like the WHO, how can they use social media best to help them be more effective with the message that they do want to send, uh, one that involves unifying people around view rather than dividing people further? We have the technology. If you just use the the big social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter and um, WeChat and WhatsApp, God, the world is so connected and we can reach everyone that matters. Um, and the people who are connected can be reached through the people who are connected. Uh, I, I think we have a mindset problem. We're not taking these as first-class issues. We're not taking communication as a first-class issue. And it is a first-class first class issue. And disinformation and miscommunication is happening because the people with the right information are not focusing on communication at scale. 
and not focusing on getting that message heard and not spending enough money. Uh, because today, if you use Sprinkler and the channels that I mentioned, you literally can listen to understand what people are thinking. And once you know what they're thinking, like, for example, I can tell you through, through Sprinkler data that people don't want to wear a mask. And then you know your problem is not passing a legislation because they are they they're going to refuse to wear it. The problem is how do I run some campaigns to educate people on why this is important and why you can risk your lives and risk the lives of the people around you when you don't follow it. And in, in listening first and communicating at scale, I just I'm struggling because I don't see people put in a focus and money and attention on it. So it's an intention issue rather than anything else. You mentioned that uh, Sprinkler has 36 channels. I mean, I'm, I'm struggling to come up with more than 10 social media networks um, that I can just name off the top of my head. Um, obviously, there are little ones, there's uh, unique ones, small niche players. What are some of the new emerging channels that you think brands and companies and government organizations should be paying more attention to? What, what are the up and comers? Two, two different questions, uh, you know, the, the up-and-comers like TikTok, um, for example, um, that's a different question. You know, you've got the Snapchats and now TikTok. That, that there's always a new sensational company coming up with, with some nuances and some differences. I think governments should focus on just using the mainstream ones where yeah. there's such scale available, right? Look at the Facebook family of products. It practically can reach you know, everybody that's online um, and and think about Twitter. Um, and and when you think about channels where people don't realize, like Google business messaging is a channel. That's a newer channel. Um, Apple's got the iMessage, which is another channel that you can use. Um, and just text messages, live chat, there's just make, make communication a priority. Channels aren't the problem. Hmm. Okay. So it's a matter of uh, the content of your message and, and your um, prioritizing that communication as opposed to the specific different channels. You mentioned Facebook and the family of products it has. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you for your thoughts on what happened with Facebook over the past couple of weeks with the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, along with 46 states, both blue states and red states, all teaming up to file these antitrust lawsuit against Facebook. How do you, how, how does this affect your business, first of all, and how do you think this will play out? Well, let me answer the second question first. It does not affect our business because we are agnostic to the channel or the number of channels. We, we're a common interface, right? And most of our application is providing businesses the capability to use any channel and these channels at scale. Um, you know, Facebook is a valuable partner of ours and we are a great partner of theirs. So I can't comment on the specifics, but I think these channels are powerful. Um, and I think I would uh, encourage using technology to solve problems than using legislation to solve problems. I think using legislation to solve problems or the government trying to solve problems is 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 not the right long-term approach for any problem. All right, Raji Thomas, I want to thank you for your time, founder and CEO of Sprinkler. 
Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or visit the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast homepage to sign up for the invites to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this event series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.